Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is drummer and composer Stuart Copeland, who has a new book, Police Diaries. Why a book? Why now, Stuart? Well, the, these diaries have been sitting in my drawer right here. And um, I did a book before of all my adventures after the police. And I discovered something very surprising, shocking, in fact, that nobody could care less about my life after the police. <laughs> No matter how amazing the adventures that I had with royalty, with fine arts, with world travel, you know, arrested a night in jail in Zaire, who cares? Um, wait, 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 wait. Stop for a second. Tell us about being arrested and spending a night in jail in Zaire. Well, I was making a movie, a documentary, and uh, kind of on a shoestring budget, crossing Africa, looking for the origins of American music. And by the way, I was looking in the wrong place. The origins of American music are New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, that's a whole nother rant um, about the origins of America's most important and significant artistic and cultural feature. Uh, another rant. Anyhow, I'm there crossing Africa and I pull into uh, Kinshasa. Um, and uh, on my way across the Congo River into uh, Brazzaville, and I get out of Kinshasa just fine. We hit Brazzaville. And the guy says, you haven't got a Zaire entry or exit visa. And that's a problem. And uh, I was with my uh, director, J.P. Dutia, who's like the genuine article, Indiana Jones, uh, man of the jungle. And uh, he would not reach into his pocket. Give the guy 10 bucks, you know. Uh, anyhow, he, they, they put us on a boat back over to Zaire, back Across the crocodile-infested, fast-flowing Congo River that separates these two halves of Congo, and uh, we got back to Kinshasa, and the guy's there, and he's surrounded by people, and and uh, everybody's, you know, there's not like a line or stand behind. No, everybody's there throwing their passports in his face, trying to get his attention, and he 
plucks one, looks at it, nah, that's a problem, hands it back. And he sees, you know, us two there, the American and the Belgian, and he looks at them, and my 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 Indiana Jones started to get a little heat, heated, and um, disrespectful even. And so suddenly, man, they have like that. Suddenly, we are dancing cheek to cheek with the men with guns, and they're frog marching us out of the building and handcuffing us to a bench. And we go, oh well, this is a fine. How do you do? Uh, and uh, the waves of humanity, and we're watching boats come down the Congo River and pulling up the port where they pull the convicts off. I'm digressing a little bit here. Stop me when you're bored. Anyhow, uh, we well, 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 let's just go. You get in jail. How long you're in jail, and how do you get out? Okay, overnight. Uh, you know, we're, we're we're chained to the bench, and this is all going on. And eventually, you know, the sun goes down, and it's getting evening, and uh, changing of the guard, and. Have we been forgotten or what? And I can hear this music coming out of the, the guardhouse, and I sort of put my nose. Hello, uh, um, bonsoir, uh, um, nous sommes ici. Hello, uh, and the guy pokes his head. Obviously, a different guy. What are you? What are you doing here? Kind of thing. And I said, "Well, uh, we, uh, it's all a big mistake." And oh, never mind. They they took us and they took us into a, a building, kind of a building shed. Not, couldn't even give it the dignity of being a proper prison, you know, uh, but they locked us up for the night. And a few hours later, um, and we saw one white guy go by. You know, when you're in Africa, you one thing that strikes you about Africa is there are no black people. Um, there are old people, young people, tall people, fat people, skinny people, colorful, rich, poor, whatever. The blackness, just you don't see that anymore until you're in that situation. One white guy goes by, you see a one white person and uh that person saw us and notified the belgian uh ambassador and who showed up with beer uh for the guards and uh cooled things out we had to spend the night because ahab's gonna be back in the morning and uh we don't want to mess with you know anyhow it was sort of bribery took care of it next morning ah oh, sorry about a little misunderstanding we we're back on the boat up to uh over the bridge to uh, over the river to um Brazzaville, and spent the next couple of weeks in the northern jungles of uh, the Congo, up there on the Oweso River with the pygmies. Okay, so you wrote this book. How did you? This realize- isn't in the book. I know, this, but you wrote the book. This is about the other event that nobody could care less about. Right, uh, right. This book, the book that we're talking about, is uh, groveling in London as as starving musicians going nowhere, and this is of the hungry years uh, when we started to um, achieve success. You know, one arena, one state, they all look alike after a while. But that hungry part, when we were in London with no hits, no credibility, that's the interesting part of the story. Let's go back to the beginning. Your father was in the CIA. Did you know that? I assumed it. Uh, everyone in Beirut, Lebanon, if their dad wasn't in the CIA or a spy of some kind, the, the kids were bragging on that they were, you know, and so it was sort of what Beirut is all about. It was kind of a nexus of of uh, espionage and intrigue in the Middle East. It was a power place. And uh, everybody's dad was a spy. Isn't yours? Um, and one day my brother Miles comes home from school and says, Dad, are you a spy? To which our father replied, who wants to know? <laughs> what was his cover? Uh, cultural attache. And it was noticed uh, by some that the cultural attache had it as it, it, basically what I could see 
uh, of what it looks like is cocktail parties, socializing. And at these soirees thrown by my parents, my very sophisticated mother and my fast-talking father, uh, there were playwrights and, and poets and such, uh, an interesting number of men in uniform for some reason amongst the poets and playwrights and, and tenor singers. Um, and uh, the deal was is there, they were cultivating and grooming uh, colonels who might one day be useful. Okay, it was billed Beirut as the Paris of the Mideast. It ultimately got bombed out, never recovered. What was it like when you lived there? Well, we felt underprivileged. We didn't have TV. Uh, in fact, TV did arrive while we were there. Uh, I was in Beirut for 10 years and before that in Cairo. I left America when I was two months old um, and didn't get back till I was 18. Uh, so in Beirut, uh, when TV arrived in black and white, suddenly there were, you know, Beirut skyline had TV antennas everywhere, but the shows were in Arabic, uh, and, and French, um, or, and American shows, the Virginian, um, Bonanza and such, uh, dubbed into Arabic and, and or French with subtitles, not in English. And so I grew up on all these American classic shows in Arabic. And the first time I heard Bonanza in English, Oh man, those voices are all wrong. You know, Haas has a <laughs> high squeaky voice, whereas in Arabic he had this low Southern Lebanese Palestinian kind of voice. It was much more, you know, guttural and much, you know, went with that big physical stature that he had. Okay, so TV comes along. Are you therefore addicted because it's a new thing? Or, hey, just watch an occasional program. Well, they only had the occasional program. Uh, it wasn't like you can watch TV all day now. And by the way, the first television in our household was from our, our, our maid, our, our nursemaid, you know, in, in what was then called the third world, uh, because they weren't with the Ruskies and they weren't with us during the Cold War. They were the people who were unaligned. Um, in that part of the world, uh, a diplomat's salary could go a very, very long way. So we lived like nabobs. We had a chauffeur, gardeners, cooks, uh, nannies, maids, and so on. But the main na name, uh, Soraya, who was also Palestinian, um, uh, she would she got a television and would let us watch it if we were good boys and girls. So the only discipline that was imposed on the Copeland brats was by Soraya using her television. Um, and we would be good boys and girls for the duration of the Virginian. We didn't realize the value of it until later. Looking back at the time, we felt underprivileged over in America. You know, we were at an American community school, the American community school. And people, we knew vaguely that over on the other side of lands and oceans is this shining light on a hill where everything is new, modern, and clean. Um, but uh, so we aspired to America and we dreamed of it being, tried to be as American as we could be. Uh, even though we we're all a long way from home. Okay. Would you go back and visit or you were just there for the duration? I would, I have been back to visit. Uh, no, Lebanon's no, the reverse. When you were living in Cairo, when you're living in uh, Lebanon, did you come back to the U S or did you stay in Europe in the middle East? There was one trip that we made back to Woodside. You know, basically I was born in a suburb of the CIA, Woodside, uh, Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and but just young enough that I can barely remember it. But no, the rest of the time I was there after 
Beirut. I went to boarding school uh, in England in darkest Somerset um, until my until I hit eighteen. Actually, nineteen when I got my draft number, which was two hundred and eighty six or something, uh, which meant that I was safe. Um, I was on the next plane over to uh, pick up my college education in California. Okay, so how old were you when you left Lebanon? Left Lebanon at 14. Okay. So what's the status of the Beatles in music when you're in Lebanon? Huge. They landed at Beirut Airport. And I have footage. I don't know where this footage came from, but somebody got it and sent it to me of my brother in a Beatles wig at the Beirut Airport, along with his girlfriend, her sister, and all their friends squealing at the Beatles who arrived on the tarmac came out of the thing kind of waved from the, uh, from, from the, the airplane doorway, uh, the top of the stairs. And they had one wrong beetle amongst them. Uh, I'll have to check the history books, but apparently they did a tour of the far East or somewhere with a, either John or Paul missing and uh, some kind of replacement, which is weird, which you, I've never read about anywhere else, but there's one wrong beetle amongst them. Um, and, uh, they were on their way and just stopped off. You know, the plane stopped. They didn't get off the plane, but it flew through, and that was a big event. Okay, so when did you start being exposed to music? Well, my father was a jazz player, and uh, he played the trumpet until he the World War broke out, and he joined the military and became an intelligence and law and so on. Um, but my I'm the youngest of four. My father filled the house with musical instruments. There was a big grand piano. There was guitars. There was, you know, he got me started on a trombone. Um, and then I discovered hitting a drum. Now, this was dramatic because I was a late developer. And uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. what do you mean you were a late developer? I was the runt of the litter. Everyone else my age at the age of 12 was beginning to shave and, uh, you know, uh, their voices were dropping and, and, you know, they're suddenly becoming men and I was still a squeaky little kid. So how was that emotionally? Well, I was squeaky. I was the youngest in, of, of the siblings, which meant that I was kind of behind anyway, but even in my age group at school, somehow I was a little bit smaller and less grown up. Then I got on a drum set. Bang! And suddenly, within a heartbeat, I am an 800-pound silverback motherfucker swinging through the trees. Kiss my ass. And uh, that just like the power of the drums just suddenly gave me what I had been lacking. Fuck shaving. I got this drum that I can scare people with. And do you ever take any drum lessons? Yes. My father, as soon as he spotted that, you know, uh, any parent can look at their children and, you know, give them music lessons and so on. And, and the clue is that if you have to say, uh, Susan, I think it's time for your piano practice. Forget it. You're wasting your time. If it's Susan, will you just shut up for a minute? Okay. There you got a musician in the family. And I was that kid. As soon as I got a snare drum and I'm banging on it morning, day, through the night, um, and will not shut up. Uh, then my dad to make matters worse, got me the rest of the drum set and I would not shut up on that. And, um, my brother Ian, who was my agent when I was 12, uh, still was my agent 
50 years later uh and uh got me into a band the black knights and uh we played the high we played the uh, american community school we played uh manor house the british school we played the british embassy beach club uh and other uh illustrious venues across beirut and what did you play uh we played um uh kink songs we got to get uh animals we got to get out of this place house of the rising sun james brown in fact i still have the cold shakes that one song i feel good da, 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 like i knew that i would da. okay i'm getting nervous now it's coming up there how many duns are there and i lie awake at night even now trying to count them out um, but when I was 12, that was the moment of terror in the, in the set. What was the brand of your first set? Uh, it was La Fima. Uh, and I had, I know that cause I had the snare drum I kept for a long time. The rest of the drums were rented. So the, but the La Fima was mine. Um, my father had already invested in lots of musical instruments, which didn't take with my older siblings. So he just rented me a drum set until he was sure that, okay, this ain't going away. Um, Stuart, would you please stop for a second? Um, and that was when I got to London, and that drum set was a premiere, baby blue pearl drum set. What brand do you play now? I play Tama drums. At a certain Why? point, my, fir my, first, uh, my first professional record company bought drum set, which was a big double Ludwig Perspex Vistalite monstrosity was so cool didn't sound that great um but i was making ends meet um in those days by reviewing equipment for uh music magazines and uh one of the things that i reviewed was these japanese drums now we're talking 1976 and 1976 japanese meant cheap um now it means extremely high tech high quality um, you know, advanced engineering, but that was the day of the, the Japanese, uh, knockoff, but these Japanese drums, Tama drums were not knockoffs. They were not like Ludwig drums or Rogers or premier or any of these American or English brands. They were bigger, stronger, higher tech, better materials, better sounding, just superior in every imaginable way. And so I'm reviewing these drums for sounds magazine. And I thought, I want to get me some of these. And I, um, at that time, I was playing in Curved Air, which is a prog rock band that had been successful years before I joined. I was one of the last rats to jump aboard the sinking ship. Um, and I used this credibility to contact the importer and say, hey, look, I'm with this big band and I might uh, be inclined to uh, use your Tama drums that you're importing there. And uh, here's a review. And here's all these reviews of the band of how big they were before i joined uh and uh hornswoggle the drum set out of them and i got this drum set and i it showed up and at my first sound check with curved air with these drums i pulled them out on the stage and the sound engineer comes running down like, oh man you got to keep these drums. get rid of those ludwigs oh man this you can't imagine how much better these sound please please throw away those ludwigs and play these japanese drums and so i've now been playing them for i think it's almost 50 years and have you tried any other brands at this point yeah kind of well i got buddies who play other other drums but you know last time i think at the 40 year mark 
they persuaded Tama persuaded me to go down there and give a speech at the uh, Nam convent the music in, uh, equipment convention. And okay, so I went down. There. It was a very short speech actually, but I thought kind of hit the point. Ladies and gentlemen, forty years. Thank you. Any questions? How many drums do you own today? Shall we uh, spend a moment counting them? No, well, this is audio only, Stuart, so you got to describe. Okay, just standing here from the microphone here, visible right now. I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. I think that's a drum. You'd probably call that a drum. Sixteen, seventeen. Timpani, I got two timpani that we'll call those drums, even though timpani players would never call themselves percussionists. They are timpanists. But I will count those two timpani as two drums. Okay. Where was I? 20, 17. Many. That's how many drums I have. Many. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I, I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back to boarding school. 
everybody I know went to English boarding school has a bad tale to tell. Was it culture shock? What was it like leaving Lebanon, going to boarding school in England? I, I enjoyed it. It was a great school, actually. And I know that's weird. You're not supposed to enjoy school, but I did. Um, and uh, I was the American kid. Um, and, uh, but that's okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was way out in Somerset, and uh, I had a group of friends and kind of enjoyed boarding school. It was co-ed. Um, and uh, it had an amazing sports program that had horses. I was able to, I, I learned how to ride horses. Never saw that coming, and I became quite devoted to horses, and I still am. Although I don't, I traded all my horses in for children, uh, but I played polo there, uh, which came in handy when I was a rock star in the countryside. Okay, and were you playing in bands in boarding school? Ah, uh, kind of, sort of like we'd get together and give her, think up a cool name for the band and learn how to play Proud Mary, and. Um, the, the school wasn't hiring, so we didn't play any gigs, and uh, we'd have to hornswoggle somewhere to congregate to play when we'd get complaints about the noise, so it didn't last. Um, I didn't start, I played in bands in Beirut when I was 12, but, you know, in a strange way, when I came back to the, you know, the, the first world, if you like, uh, I regressed my life. I went back to being a 12, 13, 14, 15, however old I was, whereas in Beirut, I was master of the universe. Uh, my brother, who was a couple of years older, was stealing motorcycles, and we were, you know, it was great. Coming back to the world where you're not allowed to cross the street without a, until a machine tells you it's okay, and if you're busting for a leak, you can't just, like, pull behind a bush and unzip. All kinds of constraints on free life. Uh, you know, sidewalks are an imposition. Uh, and uh, so I felt kind of constrained by the civilized, developed world, uh, but somehow managed to acclimate. And you obviously speak English, and it's interesting, without an accent, never having grown up in the U.S., but do you also speak Well, and when I first got to England, I didn't realize that half the words in my vocabulary were not English, because everybody in cities like that, well, we spoke Arabophranglais, which is Arabic, French, and English. and. Um, I didn't know that half the words were Arabic, and I got teased about that a little bit. Um, and well, by being the American kid, uh, that made me strangely very patriotic. As a matter of fact, oh, goddamn, yes, I am American. Kiss my ass. And you're in boarding school with the boys. What about the girls? Oh, there were girls. It was co-ed. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah, yeah. It was a very advanced, modern boarding school. It was. Um, it was. A kind of a new concept at the time it was like the new age it was a new version of boarding school it weren't wasn't eaten and harrow and stowe and, and rugby it was the new face of education um and it had a very it had a robin hood policy where elizabeth taylor's kids uh, were there and the potentates of africa the saudi princes were there and they paid the bills while interesting kids which was i guess me um uh, uh had a reduced rate so it, they had you know it, it was a very interesting student body and they poached sports stars from other schools so we had the top under 21 tennis players and 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 so on it was pretty cool concept of a school but it was not like the old-fashioned boarding schools it was very modern education system uh and co-ed right there 
but you know the rules were if you know a private assignation would be an you could get expelled for a private assignation which is just if you're alone in a room with a member of the opposite sex well that didn't stop you did it uh no <laughs> so how did you end up going to college in the u.s well uh first i went to co american college in england because of the vietnam war um and i was draft board 100 which means that uh colorado and arizona they have a quota of how many 18 year olds they had to send to the army for the vietnam war the draft no escape whether you're a senator's son or whatever you're going and um they had a lottery system where every date of the year, 365 days, every birthday, they're all thrown into a bat hat and they pull them out one by one. You get a number. Okay, January 17th, that's one. September 14, that's two and whatever, whatever. And every d birth date gets a number. Uh, and usually, the you know, in every state, Colorado would be drafting up to, you know, 150 or something like that. If you were below 100, you're getting drafted. Get over it. Uh, and so I, uh, but draft board 100, which was expatriates, Americans living abroad who turned 18 outside of America, that draft board had a quota of zero. So as long as I stayed outside of America, I was absolutely legally safe from the draft. But the minute I set foot in America, I'd have to re-register in whatever state that might be. And I was not prepared to do that until I got my extremely high draft number, which meant I was safe. So I showed up here in California uh um point loma san diego uh which turned out to have the best surf on the west coast and all my buddies were surfers and um california here i come so you went and graduated where berkeley i didn't graduate though uh i went i did four years of college in fact i, I did four years in three and a half years um and I was all ready to come back next September to do underwater basket weaving. I had like three more credits to do. Um, but as I did every summer, I went back to London and roadied for bands. And this time I went and played in a band and it turned into a thing. And suddenly I'm in a professional band touring Europe. And do I want to go back to Berkeley? Uh, maybe next year uh, or never. And I never did make it back there. And what did your parents say about that? Uh, well, I was launched into life happening uh that's what the main thing and i didn't really give it any thought until years later um when i wrote to uc berkeley and said uh any chance i could do those last couple courses just to cross the t dot the i and they said well that major doesn't exist anymore um and you, there's several other courses and no you can't do a correspondence course from la you'd have to come up here and well okay I'll award myself a degree in life with my seven kids and whatever. I have ach small achievements I've made in life uh, later for that. But I would like to go back there and teach one day. Did your seven kids go to college? Uh, yeah, one of them graduated from UC Berkeley. Okay. So when you're there for three and a half years, how involved are you in music and are you playing the drums? What's going on? Well, the United States International University, which had a campus in England, uh, one in Nairobi, another one in Mexico City, uh, Steamboat Springs, and Point Loma, California, with the best surf in the West Coast, uh, I was there for two years and then and majoring in music. But then when I 
went to Berkeley, you know, applied to Berkeley. In those days, they had overcapacity. It's hard for people to imagine now, but I just notified them of the blessing of my decision to attend their university, to which they had more capacity than they had students in that era. I was at the end of the baby boom, and all the all the institutions were built for the baby boom, and uh, they were running out of babies by the time I came along. So it was easy to get into college. But so I go to the music school there. Uh, and they gave me a test and I failed that test miserably because I'm not a pianist. I'm, I was playing drums and I knew three chords on the guitar and was dedicated to music and so on. Uh, but they declined me at the music school. So I went and studied public policy and communications, communications and public policy instead. And looking back, I think if they had accepted me, I would probably be the timpanist with the Ohio symphony now. Um, but since they didn't, uh, and the stuff that I needed to know about being a musician, I already knew uh, from my first, all I needed was, you know, music theory 101. That's all you really need. The rest is God given. It's talent, it's gift, it's imagination. Um, and so what I did learn was how media works, how promotion works, how to communicate, you know, how to manipulate the, the zeitgeist. Um, and so, uh, that came in very handy. I could use all that, and that's what my career uh, Everyone else in that major, by the way, was going to be a politician or in advertising. So did you play in bands in Berkeley? Yes, I did. Um, you know, just jamming with people, not playing shows. We, you know, played the occasional kegger um, uh, with buddies. In fact, one of my buddies in Berkeley uh, re re did a recording, got a lacquer, printed up 200 copies of an actual record designed the art himself called the grand zilch of ozone and released this record. Um, most of them ended up moldering in his, you know, garage. Uh, but years later they were discovered and people have been making them. And this is like a lost relic, you know, the grand zilch of ozone, which is barely recognizable as music, but yep, that's me on there banging stuff. Let's go back to your seven kids. You're a household name in the music world. You certainly made money during your life. How do you deal with kids and make sure they have their own life, or do you support them? How do you wrestle with all that? Well, each one of them needs different wrestling and different encouragement and different, um, you know, different. They're all different. They just come out of the box completely different, even if they grow up in the same environment. They're different. And what works for the goose does not work for the gander. And so uh, I don't have a single formula for how to raise successful children. Um, my father did, uh, or rather he had all kinds of books on the subject and he was determined and he it was kind of the beginnings of pop psychology. And he had all these books lying around the house, you know, how to raise a genius uh, and 10 steps to personal power and uh, all this cool stuff. And, I kind of absorbed those. I don't know how much use they were, but the kids just have found their own destiny and you do your best to encourage what they're good at. And, um, and you know, like my father did when he spotted that I could actually was interested in music. He just put every resource in my path to make it happen. And of my seven, only one of them was born with the actual handful of gifts that it takes to be a musician. And of course, he does something else for a living. He runs a post-production facility that he invented. 
So if they're in their 20s and 30s and they call you for money, what do you say? Uh, they haven't. Um, really? No, they're all gainfully employed. The, my youngest, who just graduated a few years ago from uh, Northwestern, and she was offered um, you know, a six-figure salary straight out of college uh, as a wolf on Wall Street, kicking ass and taking names, you know, all six foot tall of her. And, uh, she doesn't need money. She's my retirement policy. <laughs> okay. So you talk about your father and your brothers. You're all very entrepreneurial. Where did that come from? Well, my father was not entrepreneurial at all. He was good at skullduggery and the social society, but no kind of businessman really. Uh, later on when he left government employee, this is what all the agents would do, by the way, they would work for uncle Sam, get their credibility going. Then they would take a job they would quit and take the same job. But now you're working for Aramco, the oil companies <laughs> doing the same job, the same manipulation, the same, uh, negotiating, uh, and, um, navigating through the political, uh, winds of the middle East you know, the same, basically the same job only, but for oil companies, except instead of for uncle Sam, they make a load of money. Then they go back to work for uncle Sam again, uh, where they make less money. Uh, but, but get in with who the decision makers are within the American system. And he did that. He was mostly private by the time I was in my teens and saw what he was doing. Um, he ended up in, in England as a talking head, whenever there'd be a flare up in the middle East, they'd call old miles Copeland. And say, well, what do you think, Miles? And he he didn't care about what was happening. He he just wanted to throw bombs. And he would uh, he would have some formulation that would just get the most tongues wagging and the most glorious outrage inspired. You know. Uh, okay, so was your father inherently irreverent? Yes. One time uh, there was a hoo ha in England about the American embassy was somebody American was caught spying on England on our on their friends. Can you believe it? America's spying on its own friends. And uh, so they get old Miles Copeland on the screen to ask him, well, is this true? Could this be true that the Americans are spying on England? He says, of course it's true. What do you think? You're some third world country that nobody cares about? You're one of our most important allies. Of course we're spying on you. And by the <laughs> way, if you're not spying on us, call your MP. He loved that stuff. But go back to you. Why, why are the three of you so entrepreneurial? There must be something in the water or something in the upbringing. Hunger, greed, um, materialism, you know, usual stuff. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not an entrepreneur at all. I just bang stuff. I like to make music. Yeah, but forming, for, for you're the drummer. The drummer's always the business guy. Yeah, you well, form that's, that's the band, like, you yeah, know. That's because you can't send the singer in to collect from the club owner. You know, you want the band to get paid, you send in the drummer with his knuckles dragging. Give us money now. Okay, so during the summer when you're in college, you're going to the UK and you're roadieing. Tell us about that. Well, I would roadie for bands that Miles managed or Ian was the agent of. And um, uh, like Wishbone Ash, I, I, you know, you show me a back line drum set and three amps and I can you know, in a, in a Ford transit van, I'll get that sucker loaded right up in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, I've got all the skill. Basically I'm a glorified roadie, uh, very proud of my roadieing skills. Even today in my studio, I do all my own, uh, wiring and everything. Cause I'm, I'm a gearhead like that. And, um, 
then I started tour managing, and I tour managed Joan Armour Trading across America for three months. You know, not everybody is as, as sophisticated as we are. Tell us what a tour manager does. Uh, the tour manager gets the artist uh, out of the hotel, into the bus, out of the bus, onto the stage, off the stage, back into the bus, out of the bus, back into the hotel in whatever condition. Um, and uh, that's the job. The roadie has the same job, but not for the artist, for the gear. Gets the gear out of the truck, onto the stage, sets it up, off the stage, back into the truck. Much simpler job. But as little sleep as the musicians get, traditionally the tour manager gets even less. Yeah, and it's a trap. Many tour managers, you know, high attrition rate on tour managers because they're right next to the artists. And the artists can go to bed trashed, wake up at three o'clock in the afternoon in time to stagger on stage and be brilliant for an hour and a half and then stagger back off stage. The tour manager is living along that. And many think that they too can live like that and be drinking and carousing till late. And, you know, no, they've got to be, they've got to be up talking, you know, call, talking to New York at nine o'clock in the morning and they got to be booking those flights and they got to be making sure, you know, they got plates in the air to deal with. And many a tour manager forgets that they are not the talent. The talent can go and live their dissolute lifestyle. Tour managers got to get up in the morning. Okay. So you spend three and a half years in Berkeley. You come to the UK and then you get in a band. How does that happen? Uh, the band in question was a uh, violin player named uh, Daryl Way, uh, who was starting a new band that I've came over and we jammed and hey let's do a band and we, we got a band together we played a couple of shows we were called stark naked and the car thieves uh which was my brother ian's vietnam band cool name uh and so we were just about to hit the big time or we thought we were uh when curved air his previous band had a tax bill and so they figured okay well they would the band would reunite for one tour to pay off their tax bill and that would be that and okay, well, that's me back on the street. Uh, okay, well, wait a minute. I pull out my briefcase and appointed myself tour manager of Curved Air, which I was. And I was tour manager for a little while, but the tour was a big success. The audiences raved. The you know the reviews were great. It was all wonderful. But two of the guys, including the drummer, decided to go back to their lives and didn't want to carry on, which left the band in need of a drummer. I know a guy, and so did their leader, the violin player. And so I became, I went from being the tour manager of Curved Air to being the drummer in Curved Air. And uh, as I did many times in my life, going from behind the camera to in front of the camera, and then back behind the camera and back and forth. Okay. When was the dream, if ever, to be a successful musician? Remember that story of me being 12? Yes. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was Janet McRoberts, all 15 years old of her, and at the British Embassy Beach Club. And I'm playing We Gotta Get Out of This Place or whatever. And, she, and I'm 12, and she's 15, and she's dancing to my beat. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, thank you for this gift that I can induce this 15-year-old goddess to be grooving to my beat. Where is she today? She's in uh, Arizona, actually. Um, you know, we kept in touch, 
like every 10 years or something. She's got four kids and you know, whatever, whatever. She's probably a grandmother by now. Okay. So you get bitten by the bug, but there's a lot of diversion. You go to boarding school, you don't play out in bands. You go to Berkeley, you don't play out in bands. You're roadie. Okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's one one other one other epiphany there that I okay. could, that, that I, I sense the, where you're going with this here. Yes. Uh, and may, I may be wrong, uh, but there was another epiphany, the music part, not just the banging stuff part, not just the 800-pound silverback part, not just the power rush, not just the sex of inspiring a young girl to move in a sexually suggestive map which music does by the way only music is the only art form which usurps motor control of your body and makes it perfectly okay for you to thrust your pudenda in public uh anyhow it turned out that there is more to music than that which you would think would be enough uh but in boarding school uh the sunday the the the, the christmas service um every year was in Wells Cathedral, this gigantic Gothic cathedral. Actually, it's two cathedrals stuck together. Huge, beautiful, with the stained glass windows and everything. And the Christmas service is uh, a thousand students, parents, teachers, voices raised in Christmas carols and the you know and the and a choir and the huge organ, church organ. I mean, that is a musical thing. And I'm in the orchestra, the school orchestra. Uh, but I only had one song to play, which was um, Drummer Boy or something. Dun, 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 You know, that one. That was my only. Little Drummer Boy, sure. Yeah. And so I was a nervous, twitchy kid. And Mr. Fox, you know, annoyed with me just rattling and, you know, waiting for my moment. Copeland, go there. And he kicked me out of the, you know, the church. The long part is full of the thousand voices raised in song. One of the wings of the cross is the band, the orchestra, that's me. Uh, and the other huge part of the church um, was an, another cathedral stuck the two together. And so I was banished alone to that other part, floodlit from the outside with the stained glass windows and a thousand voices raised in song, the beautiful Christmas carols that just, oh, just the heart soaring with the, you know, I'm right now. I'm 16, and I can't even absorb this amount of of aesthetic excellence, this beauty, this emotion, this power. Oh, I'm not religious remotely, but man, just lit up by that music and the the visuals and everything alone in that thing. That was that was a moment. Then came the time. Okay, I'm called back to the stage, and okay, we're playing that song now. Copeland to your station, and I'm there. And I'm just in the, the still, you know, after the last hymn, the echo echoing through the, the cathedral. And uh, and you can hear people straining in their seats, waiting for the next wave of the shaman's wand. And that shaman is <clears throat> me. And I'm raising my stick, and Mr. Fox is looking at me, and it comes down. Boom! Dun-dun-dun-dun! Dun-dun-dun-dun! And the thing builds and i'm the helmsman of this gigantic ship of music ah i still get the chills today thinking about how fried my little brain was by that moment and that stuck and through all the rock and roll all the good times all the hanging around that depth of the power of music is something that i t- still take very seriously
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so you're in Curved Air, you're the drummer. How does that play out? Well, it was a time of change. We were the end of the hippie boom. I was two years too young to be a real hippie. It, had, it was rancid by then. You know, the wave had washed and we were swirling in the subs on the backside. And it was kind of over, but I was playing in this prog rock group. Um, and it was doing okay, but it was kind of, you know, the music industry was a locked door. And then suddenly, one of the Sex Pistols on national TV said, fuck! And the tabloid newspapers erupted in glorious fury of just absolute exaltation of rage. Uh, and thus was born the Sex Pistols and the Punk Revolution. Uh, new, you know, short hair, not long hair, sniffing glue, not smoking pot, hate and war rather than love and peace. It was a whole new hairdo. Same music, by the way, same E, A, and D chords on guitar, bass, and drums. Now, a little faster, okay. And the lyrics are mostly shouted rather than sung, and there shall be no guitar solos. 
but it was a new order, a new world. And these clubs started opening up in London, new bands, all the old media, Radio One, who could care what's getting airplay. It's what's happening in the clubs. And that's where the police was born um, in that world. I decided I wanted a band in that world. And so I needed to find me a guitarist and a bass player, one of whom needs to sing. Okay, before you get there, people say, don't quit your job until you have another one. You're in curved air and you say, fuck, this is going to end. I got to get a new thing. Or does it end? And then you say, well, I got to get a new thing. Well, they both happen. They overlapped. Um, I don't, my diaries don't tell what happened. There's the last curved air date, which is whenever it was. And then no further mention of curved air. I was already dabbling with this new band of mine. Um, and I don't even recall, I don't make any mention in my diary of the curved air's demise. I think it was, a. we didn't break up. It was just, there weren't any more dates and, you know, uh, without us even knowing it, we all kind of had jumped ship or the ship had vanished under our feet. Anyhow, I was on a new mission, uh, with my new band, the police. Okay. But you need money. What are you living on? I had money saved up from curved air, uh, which I was able to stretch a long way. Uh, and also I did sessions. I did a bit of journalism on the side, reviewing equipment and just made ends meet. And then when, then when I met sting, uh, when he moved down to London and he was a complete stranger, long story, you'll have to read the book. Um, he calls me up from a phone booth downstairs. Wait, wait, wait. So let's go way, 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 way back before curved ear ends. Are you the guy who's in the clubs every night? Are you making this like a science project? Let me find out yes. everything about this scene. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but curved air is still going. And I am, I'm already scheming that I want to do it yourself band. Um, this thing, cause curved air, everything we did put us deeper in debt to the man. We do a photo session where, you know, comes off the top. We do a gig costs money. We got three roadies, light show, PA, all this stuff going on. Um, and it all, we never saw the money, them all money all went to the bosses and we, we got a salary and I, I was done with that. I wanted our own band, you know, where, where, where I'm in charge of the money and what gets spent. Of course, there wasn't any money to spend, but I was going to do the spending my goddamn self. And, um, so I was already hatching this scheme and, one night, Curved Air was, had a night off in Newcastle, and the local journalist, Phil Sutcliffe, took us to see the local hot, cool jazz band, which was called Last Exit. And they had rather a useful-looking bass player who could, you know, I need a bass, either the guitarist basically needs to sing. And there's a guy playing pretty ba good bass, and he's singing too. Check, and let's check. Yep, he's got an amp. Very important. Um, but better than any of that was the obvious charisma of the guy just this charisma flashing out of every pore and i looked at that guy and i said now there is a meal ticket um and so a few weeks later i called that that journalist and said hey you know phil can you give me that guy in the last exit can the bass player can you give me his number and i start telling him about this cool new thing happening in london this punk thing and you know it's all great with that yeah but as soon as the word punk came out of my mouth this from me, I was sort of, and I could sense the temperature had dropped thirty degrees. Uh, and he said, "No, I'm not giving you his number. You're going to lure the, you know, the star of our finest art band down to the pit of Satan in London 
for punk? Are you kidding? You know, because for anybody who had a job, any adult uh, in the music industry or entertainment, for them, punk was the antichrist. It was the barbarians at the gate. It was the destruction of everything that is beautiful and sacred and pure. Uh, and, you know, the Mary mentioned would cause fistfights, you know. Uh, and so uh, he wouldn't give me the number. And I hung up and I'm kind of, well, what's the matter with that guy? And I'm walking around in circles. Finally, I thought of a much more persuasive uh, take on it, you know, Uh, much better persuasion for Phil, you know, and I call him back up. You know, basically, I was going to just say, give me his fucking number, okay? Uh, You know, I would have thought that would be much more persuasive. Uh, But he didn't pick up. His girlfriend did. And, oh, hello. Uh, hi, Stuart. Uh, I'm in Curved Air, and I was, you know, I was talking to Phil, and I says, you know, is there anything I can help you with? Yeah, I was, you know, that bass player in the last X. Oh, Sting, yeah. Um, I, I'm looking for his number. Oh, hang on a tick. And she goes and gets Phil's phone book, and 074-391-852. Wait, just be, did you make that up, or was that the real number? Oh, you can call that today. He still picks up. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. Okay. The, 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 it's in the diary. It's in okay. the book. You can see it. Actually, he had two or three different numbers at the time. That was a number as Newcastle, and he had a couple of different lum- numbers in London, and I've uh, several from you know. Anyway, uh, okay. So you got the number, then you call him. What one happens? minute later? I hear that voice that we are now also familiar with. Keep talking, and uh, those two words were very important keep talking and i because i started out with um i'm interested in you not your band i'm down here in london getting something together and uh are you a free agent keep talking okay okay so i kept talking and i bent his ears with my grandiose schemes and convincing certitude and um basically spent the next two years talking it's happening we got a photo session we got a review coming up we got gigs we got you know basically i had to keep talking uh because when you know when he got down to london everybody was after him and uh and i look back and i wonder how did i hold on how did the police survive with everything going on around you know anyway we i I tell you how we survived and why because a few weeks later my phone rings hi it's me i'm downstairs in a phone booth uh, I can't even begin to, for some reason, singers all have husky voices, I guess, because all that singing they do. Uh, the speaking voice is very kind of husky. And uh, come on up. And he comes up, and I put a bass in his hand, and I get behind the drums, and we start playing. And, oh, my God, we surge high. We rocket forth into the outer galaxies. We dig deep into the bowels of the earth. We thrust forward like an invading army. We retract and retreat into subtle, subtle poignance. And just like everywhere we go, it rocks and it's cool. And we are locked at the, you know, locked at the groove. Uh, It's what's called, it's it's the holy grail of all ensemble playing, which is called the pocket. We had a pocket. We just had, he's a complete stranger. This guy is a complete stranger standing in my house. And we're playing this cool stuff, which means this is the, you know, we knew that we were in the right company and we didn't have any songs. And for the next 
two years, we stuck it out. We didn't have Roxanne. We didn't have Message in a Bottle. We didn't have Every Breath You Take. We hadn't, didn't, he didn't even know he could write songs. He was a jazz player used to playing bass while somebody else takes a solo. He wasn't a songwriter uh, yet. Um, and besides, I, I had told him that I had songs. Yeah, I got, we, we got a band and we got, I got the songs and we got gigs coming up and it's all going on. And so, uh, yeah, I had these, you could call them songs, more like bass lines with shouting, you know. Uh, the, the lyrics were, uh, I hate the world, the world hates me, na, 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 na. you know, basically, you know, standard issue punkorama, <laughs> because that's the only work that was available. And uh, that's what we had to play, and we had to wear the uniform, and uh, and we'd had that incredible jam. And that night, I took him down to the Roxy Club, which is the opening of the first proper punk club in London. And we saw Generation X, which was Billy Idol and his band. and. Uh, and we're there looking to our left and to our right, you know, thinking, okay, these are the minnows that us sharks will devour. We're going to eat everybody's lunch. And we we're still high off what we, because we knew just the two of us playing together, we've got something rare here. This is really cool. Uh, we knew that. Well, we were arrogant, okay? Uh, and so we started, you know, I introduced him to Henry, my guitarist. Uh, who could play three chords that I had taught him, but he had the right black shades and the correctly upturned leather jacket collar uh, and was a genuine punk, which neither Sting nor I were genuine punks, but Henry was the real deal. And so we, uh, we were the police. And uh, whoa, 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 a little bit slower. First, when he came to you, he was already Sting. He already had that name. Yeah. The only person who calls him Gordon is Trudy. And when she's calling him Gordon, I take cover. Okay. In the book, you constantly refer to him as Stingo. Any particular reason you call him Stingo? Well, just to make it mine, you know, he's my buddy. We, you know, he calls me Stewie, you know, if I can suffer that indignity, then he'll put up with whatever I call him. That's a term of endearment. How long after you get your buddy, the guitarist in, do you play out? shows yeah uh well not long because arriving from america at that time were a handful of american acts out of queens new york um the heartbreakers donny thunder and the heartbreakers um blondie um wayne county and the electric chairs and one cherry vanilla and she brought her guitarist and her keyboard player and was looking for a rhythm section she figured she'd hire couple of guys in London, save her hotels and salaries. And, and so I ran across them and offered our services as the rhythm section and the opening act. And I provided back line because I had the gear. And so she got, so Sting and I were the bass player and drummer in her band with her guitarist, uh, Louis Lapore and uh, keyboard player Zeka. And the police was the opening act with Henry. We'd play our our eight songs in about four minutes uh we were fast and then come back on stage as cherry vanilla's band and uh they were really good musicians actually it was a good band um and once again i'm surprised that that you know cherry's manager was trying to steal sting as everyone else was and i was surprised that he stuck with me and henry and later on one day we were 
doing sessions. We were the, the happening rhythm section. That's how we paid the rent. And uh, in walks Andy Summers on this session. And he's really uh, way above us. He was, you know, triple scale, you know, what you'd pay somebody else, you pay Andy times three. Um, and legendary player. And uh, for some reason, he latched on to us. This failed fake punk band were going nowhere. Uh, remember, we didn't have those songs yet. And we just had my bass lines with shouting. Uh, but we were a heck of a rhythm section. And Andy just decided that we need him in his and, and he accepted our non-invitation and was suddenly a member of the group uh at first we couldn't believe it you know that session driving home sting is seething with musicality he had it all bottled up we've been playing our crap punk songs and, and so on and just but a day of actual music with real musicians reminded him of his reason for living and he's driving home seething and saying, we got to get that guy. And I'm humoring him. We're not going to get that guy. Sure. That'd be great. That'd be great. We're not going to get that guy. And, uh, and he's going on, he's, he's on a rant. He's going, yeah, Henry's a crap guitarist. You're a better guitarist than Henry and you're crap. And, and, and I'm, you know, he carries on with his tirade, but I'm taken aback at this unexpected accolade. Really? I'm better than Henry. Okay. I'm <laughs> crap, but I'm better than Henry. Uh, and so we ended up doing a show with, with the guy who employed us, a guy named Mike Howlett and other things. So we kept running in, and then there was mixing that album and we kept running into Andy and Sting and I are plotting, how the hell can we get that guy? What can we offer him? You know? And one day, uh, I run into him on Oxford circus tube station in London and he pulls me into a cab and say, Hey, look, you and that, that bass player. I think you got something, but you need me in the band and I accept. And that's very Andy, by the way, uh, direct to the point. And, uh, I couldn't believe it. And I called sting. It was a done, done, done deal. That's it. That's it. Go, hold on, hold on. And I explained to Andy, uh, just so you know, the record company, that's me on the phone selling boxes of records to record stores in Birmingham and Manchester. I am the record company. You're looking at it. Uh, management once again, you're looking at it. this is it i got see this briefcase that's my briefcase that's the manager uh roadies yes we do have a road crew that would be you uh on one end i will take the other end of your amp but that's you are the road crew uh and basically i'm throwing all this stuff at him uh to kick the wheels you know to shake it loose because i was sure he'd quit after a week and we'd be screwed um but he stuck to his guns and he canned all of his sessions except for one which was critical uh, this German composer, uh, he kept that gig and brought me along and then sting too. And, and that's another story that's in the book, uh, and was determined to join the band. Okay. Now we have an actual musician on guitar. Whoa, 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 whoa. He gives you an ultimatum. I'll come in the band, but it has to be a trio. You got to get rid of the other guitars. That's right. And we said, well, well, so now. Sting and I are scheming and plotting and not how do we get Andy in the band? It's how do we get Henry out of the band? Uh, and cause he was our best friend. He was just, just the best guy. Uh, and he was very cool. He was great on stage. I mean, he could only play three chords, but man, he played them with great panache and he was the real thing. The only reason people 
paid any attention to the police was because Henry was credible. The others, you know, the other two guys were obviously, obviously real musicians, you know, fuck that. Uh, but Henry was the real thing and it just had a vibe about him and, oh my God, he just, you know, he was the life of the party and it, you know, both of us, it, we loved Henry. It was really hard, but we had to, you know, music supersedes humanity. How did you tell him and what did he say? Well, uh, he could, we went into the studio and I thought, well, let's give him one last recording here. Uh, and, um, actually John Cale theoretically was producing the session, although he didn't really do much in the way of producing. Uh, and he could sense something was wrong. So he calls Sting up later and say, what's the matter with Stuart's weird? Uh, what's going on here? And, and, and Sting says, oh, I'm so sorry, Henry. Thinking we had decided I was going to tell Henry, but I was such a, such a, you know, such a pussy that I hadn't. Uh, and it was disgraceful. Uh, and he calls up and says, what's there? And so Sting's commiserating with it. And Henry's going, wait, what, what, what? Uh, so he's on the phone to me and, uh, what's what the Sting says? Sting's, oh, you know, I said, well, and I had to, you know, finish the job. Uh, and it was terrible. The next day he was scooped up by Wayne County and the electric chairs who were a bigger act than us. And within two weeks, we were opening for him in the electric chairs. Now, Henry was a great guy, and the electric chairs were one of the best hangs in show business. They were just, a, all those bands, they were great fun. Uh, and it was, there we were, opening for Henry. Uh, so he was a happy guy, and he did have a big career in France, because he's Corsican French. And uh, uh, he was one of the judges on the big talent sh television talent show. He's a, he's a big star in France now. Um, and he did get pretty good on the guitar while he was at it as the year. As so you did him a favor. We did. We did. And Andy did us a favor because as soon as we had Andy in the band with his harmonic sophistication, now Sting's ears prick up and he's had a couple of years of being the discipline of the punk format, which is verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitars, you know, not guitars, no guitar solos allowed, bridge, verse, chorus, out, chorus, 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 out. You know, just a simple, that's the format. That's the formula of a pop song rammed down his throat. And so now he had an actual musician, but he had, he was writing songs for the police, but, but with only two chords, you know, they weren't the big songs that we're familiar with now. Uh, I think visions of the night. Um, uh, anyway. Um, but now with Andy, his mind, it just started exploding with music. And that's when he came out with those songs that you have heard of. And one by one, they replaced our dumb fake punk songs. And we, you know, every time he said, I got another song, we would leap on it like piranhas. And uh, suddenly it, with every song he brought in, it was like an upgrade. And we started, we started turning into an actually pretty good group with kind of a unique sound just in the nick of time, because Andy was, a, we were already, unhip but with henry in the band we had some friends but as, without henry and everybody knew that andy had been around the block a couple times too many times he was 10 years older than sting and i and uh sting and i were batted up but andy and his first show <coughs> with the band actually while henry was still in the band we played two shows with two guitars and he comes on stage and he's now made the big step of cutting his hair which it's hard to emphasize enough what a big deal that was. That means he exchanges one whole friend group for another group. I mean, it's like coming out as punk. And 
all those people would close their doors to him and all these new people or you know not that hospitable punks uh that was his new family so he cut his hair and he made that huge leap across the um rubicon but he had not yet traded in his sartorial um equipment he was still in bell bottoms short hair and bell bottoms busted and that's when the last shred of credibility of the police as punk band fell away and we knew we better come up with some good music or we are screwed and we did if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer dan patrick and hosted by me jay harris that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what. God, if you show me, God, if you tell me, God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, when did you come up with the name police and when did you start to use it? I had the name police before I had the band. And I had a manifesto, which I still have, by the way. That's uh, when I when I'm in mood, when I need some light comedy, I'll pull out my vitriolic uh, document statement of purpose. Uh, it's quite funny, really, uh, written by a wild-eyed 26-year-old, and um, 
yeah, it was all planned. It was it was all on paper. And uh, in my book, I've got a page of all the other band names that I was considering. You know, artillery, teeth, London teeth. There's a lot of a lot of orthodontic imagery <laughs> in the names of this group. You know, teeth of London. You know, biting. You know, the the bite. You know, actually, we should have been called the bite. Okay, you've been living in London, but. The police weren't cool in America. They were referred to as the pigs. Did you yeah, worry well, about that's the-, the point? That's the point. The punks were the anti hippies. They wore suits. Okay. They were fucked up slashed with razor blade suits, but they were suits with ties, skinny ties. They had short hair, not long hair. They did not smoke pot. They sniffed glue. They did not talk about peace and love. It was war, anger, and anger and anger. Uh, and so, the punks were to hippies it looked like the man the revenge of the man you know that all the hippies rebelled against suits and short hair and everything suddenly the suits and short hair they're they're appearing up from the streets wild-eyed high on sniffing glue and uh it was like every hippie's nightmare okay have you ever sniffed glue uh i tried it i don't get it uh no don't do it. <laughs> there's there's, there's got to be a better way of getting high. Okay. In the era, how are you with alcohol and drugs? Uh, drugs, yes. Alcohol, not so much. Um, we were stoners. Drinkers were a different tribe. Um, and I was still leftover hippie, I guess. Uh, California kid, uh, still smoking pot uh, as medication. To I was, I was an anxious guy. Looking at these diaries, the activity, go, I mean unbelievable hard slog the police was after curved air in the lap of luxury with three roadies light show and everything you know and a salary uh and curve in police it was scrabbling for every penny carrying our gear in and out driving the length of the nation for a gig you know for 30 quid uh and so i forget where are we, where are we going well you gotta you covered let me go back what, what we didn't mention is you end up in a relationship with the lead singer of Curved Ear, who also comes with a child. Yes. What is she thinking about you at this point, scrounging and starting over? Well, we were both at it. She, um, on her own, she had her solo career, which she was pursuing with great energy. And we both were living parallel lives, struggling with our various bands. And um, she was doing a lot better than me because she had the momentum of being the star singer of Curved Air. And so she was doing much better than me. And I was, you know, an appendage. Um, you know, we'd go places and meet people and they would be all interested in meeting her. And I'm standing there like a lunk and who could care less, you know. Um, and that was sort of my social position. And one day my group kind of came out from under and overtook. But, you know, we were, we were very bonded. And had, you know, we we're both working it every which way we could. And how did that relationship end? Oh, three kids, 12, 15 years later, something. I can't remember how long. We, we, we eventually did get married. And, uh, and I'm, my camera's running low on gas. Uh, we eventually did get married. And uh, she came with a son. And we had two more boys. And how did it end? Uh, we eventually divorced very amicably and, um, we had, you know, when I, 
was traveling the world and playing polo and la-di-da. And she was still, you know, she didn't want to be seen in a Mercedes with her hippie friends playing folk clubs and everything. She hated the image of being the rock star's wife. Uh, and uh, she she wouldn't be caught dead in a Mercedes, you know, only a, you know, a third-hand VW bus would suit her. And uh, she's just a wonderful person. I've been very blessed and fortunate in both of the women that I married. Okay. So, so far, the story is about you. At what point do your two brothers become involved? Well, my brother Ian was my agent at the age of 12. Got me into my first band, the Black Knights. He was the coolest kid in Beirut, and they really wanted him in the band because he was the Fonz, um, but he couldn't play drums. Um, my other brother, Miles, was kind of a music mogul. And um, he started up a company managing bands such as, in fact, he put together Wishbone Ash and other prog bands of the era that you wouldn't have heard over over here in the States, like Renaissance, Curved Air. But we heard um, of all those. Uh, Wishbone Ash. Absolutely. Um, Climax Blues Band. Uh, Ooh, I love Caravan, you. Al Stewart and such. And uh, they had kind of a music empire. And that's where I learned all my skills as, as roadies for all those groups and eventually tour manager for some of those groups my first tour of america was with joan armor trading uh just her and acoustic guitar and me and my briefcase for three months across america um ending up in san francisco what point does sting come in with roxanne and you immediately hear it about a year and a half in we were struggling and starving and going nowhere for about a year and a half um and he wrote it without any agenda. It was certainly not a police song because we were still theoretically a punk band. And um, I, he wrote it before Andy joined and he had it there. And just one afternoon he was playing it to Andy because, you know, out of earshot of their Taliban drummer, you know, because I was the one cracking the punk whips and no, we got to be punk. We got to be punk. And they were saying, can't we just play? Some no, we can't play. Just play some music. We got to be punk. And so they considered me to be the wild-eyed, you know, uh, morality police of the band. And uh, so secretly, uh, Sting might have played this bossa nova lament to Andy, who immediately said, we got to play that, we got to play that, which we did for every song. Whatever song he pulled out, we suddenly, we got to play that. Uh, and so he pulled it out in a rehearsal, and I gave it a drum beat that was kind of bass backwards. Uh, and made it into a police song. It wasn't punk karama, but it was still a rock song, um, even though it was kind of a lament. And that was about a year and a half into the band. You know, the, it, 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 and by the way, it sank without a trace when it first came out. Uh, and can't stand. Listening. Okay, but anybody who heard it in America, it was a one listen smash, and it was played. Did you realize how great it was, or it was just another Sting song? Uh, it was a throwaway song, and it was my brother Miles who put his finger on it. That's what he does. He provides dumbass, which is forget musicality, sophistication. He hears it. Folks are going to love this. And I don't care if it's any good or not, but I do know folks are going to love this. And so we were recording our album uh, basically on a deal with the uh, the studio owner who was just trying to get any bands in there would make any deal just to get some albums recorded in the studio so he could establish himself. Wait, wait, this is Nigel Gray. 
This is Nigel Gray. Nigel Gray was nobody at the time. Nobody. Uh, he just said he was a doctor. He was a family doctor who invested in some recording equipment, which he put in this uh, above a dairy um, and started just recording bands on the off chance that one of them would hit. And one of them was Clark Kent, which was me on guitar, bass, and drums singing songs that were even too dumb for the police. Uh, but one of which was picked up by Radio 1 BBC and became a hit. They put it on the playlist. And suddenly Clark Kent is having a hit, which was a secret identity thing. And long story short, um, the police had released Roxanne and Can't Stand Losing You sank without a trace. But suddenly Clark Kent is having a hit. And so the record company got me and the band and signed, you know, A&M Records, who had just done a, a singles deal, said, okay, let's get these guys. Let's sign them up for an album. And they signed us up for an album. And we were uh, recording that album when Miles comes down. He, he, had, he wasn't officially our manager yet. He was just my big brother. And I used his Rolodex and his offices and his resources and his wisdom and his advice. But he wasn't technically our manager. Um, and he hears all their, ah, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's just another rock band. And then last thing we played him was Roxanne. That's a hit. And uh, the legend is that he tore off all of his clothes, and went running down Leatherhead High Street, shouting Eureka. Um, well, that myth, I, I started that myth. Uh, so it's true. Um, and he took it to, he said, I'll take that to a record company. And and um, said, okay, we'll release that as a single, and the rest is history. Okay, but let me just wrap up a couple of things. One, is the album done when you tour America? Yes. Uh, and when we go to America, it is uh, the record company is not aware of us. The American record company, in fact, there's a famous conversation where Miles calls up the American record company and says, okay, I got this band, the police, I'm bringing them over. And they said, don't bring them over. We're not going to give you tour support. I never heard of them. They don't mean anything. The, the punk band, forget it. Uh, and um, Miles says, never mind. I'm bringing it up. Well, we're not giving you any, you know, and there's the famous list of knots that they're not going to provide us. Uh, but we came over anyway. We came over the, with the, my drums as, as, as check, you know, as luggage um, and uh, pulled up to the CBGBs in New York City. And, and by this time, Miles and Ian had gotten a truck or actually a, a, a van, uh, a station wagon, with two amps and a drum set. And they had just brought Squeeze over, UK Squeeze, who played these the circuit of clubs that my brother Ian had found, one in Philadelphia, one in Boston, one in New York, and, and so on. Grendel's Lair and, and the Rat Club in Boston and so on, like a circuit. Uh, and we were the second band to come over on that circuit. Uh, unknown, but we were English, and there was a scene, and, you know, for kids who are thirsting for something new thursday night at the rat club in boston whoever's playing they're english cool i'm going down and uh that's how we started to actually strike a light in uh in america so the legend is the album was not out in america when you toured is that correct no the album was it, the record company wasn't aware of it which meant that it wasn't out but it was available on import and radio stations were playing it wbcn and in, in boston was playing it uh, WMMR in Philly, you know, uh, whatever the stations were, you know, they were, they were playing it, particularly college stations. And so, uh, another long story when I was touring, 
Joan Armour Trading's tour manager. She was on AM and I met their you know artist relations guy. I happened to know him, and he heard about this band and her, you know, he was starting to hear they're starting to get positive feedback, but nobody even are they even on our label? They, they had no idea. We were signed in England. And so he comes out to check out a show in Indiana or something, calls up Jerry Moss the next day, who's the M of AM Records. We got a hit here. You know, send money. Uh, we didn't need money. We are completely self-sufficient. You know, two hundred dollars a night, and we could get to the next city. And uh, you know, that's two hotel rooms for three. You know, three in the band and one guy. Uh, so that's when record company A and M showed their true colors. They immediately they said, "Well, let's check this record out." Whoa! Uh, and they started coming to shows. Whoa! And by the time we got to Los Angeles, the headquarters, they were out there on full parade with every resource. You know, these are all the things they're going to do, the, not the knots. These were the going to can and will do. And they really did run with it. They were absolutely the best record company ever. And were you ever disillusioned, especially driving in a station wagon cross country, or did you always know you were going to make it? And did you have any idea you were going to be as big as you were? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, and that's the same answer that most musicians would give you. Uh, bands are eternally optimistic, um, mutually affirming. We are the best, aren't we? We kick our ass, don't we? Totally. Last night, we blew us away. You know, that's how bands work. And so, yes, we were convinced, absolutely certain, in fact, that we would dominate and rule the world. Uh, and we had that same arrogance from the moment the day sting and i met and we went down to the roxy club and saw generation x uh, and looking around at the minnows on our left and on our right that us sharks were going to eat uh we knew that we were going to rule the world the same way generation x knew that they were going to ruin rule the world and the same way that evil edna's horror toilet assumed that they were going to rule the world okay in the beginning, you're writing a lot of songs on the albums, and then as the albums go down the path, you're writing fewer songs. What goes on there? Uh, well, most of my songs at that time were going to Clark Kent, and I was managing the band too, so I didn't have time. But um, you can see in the book, uh, I have the set lists, and the first set lists are all my songs, uh, one animal song, one curved air retread, and you know my handwriting and then one by one sting songs start appearing visions of the night uh i can't remember uh whatever that whatever they were they were not the big ones that we're familiar with now but they were better than anything i'd written and one by one and then the last one that appears and it's like now 50 50 but look closely and you'll see that it's now sting's handwriting doing the set list because by now it's his band Okay, you keep a diary throughout all this. Why? I don't know. I keep stuff. But you stopped keeping the diary, according to the book. Well, I got a movie camera. And that is, story is taken up. You know, the, the book kind of ends. You know, I've, I've got date sheets of what happened when we got to America. But the, 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 the narration really ends when we leave England and go to America. And the story is picked up there by my Super 8 camera and the film uh, Everyone Stares, which came out a few years ago, you know, which is all 
the Super 8 footage of the rise and the rocket ship ride of the police, which I got all of on Super 8. So when you go through the diaries and your other paraphernalia, are you reminded of what happened or do you remember vividly anyway? Well, my memory is wrong in many cases. And uh, I've learned that I've been set right by fans sometimes. And somebody would say, when you used to play such and such a song, did you use the such and such? And they go, well, we never played that song. And then another fan, would write, oh, yes, you did. And here's a recording. Um, so memory is a very uh, flexible thing, very creative thing. Um, and the di- you know, I, I read Sting's book, Andy's book, Henry's book, Miles's book. Um, and their memories diverge from mine, but I've got the receipts. So how did you actually assemble the book? I didn't. Uh, well, I did. I wrote all the commentary. Uh, describing what's these mysterious, because a lot of the big events, you know, I met Sting. I met this bass player named Sting. I had no idea that this was going to change my life. So it doesn't have a, it's not a red letter day. There isn't like a, it's not underlined in capital letters or anything. There's just, you know, I didn't realize at the time. So there's commentary, modern commentary um, that goes along with it. And uh, I wrote that in the pictures and doodles and accounts. I sort of, in in not photoshop but in in word i just sort of plonked the images that i wanted to use but they that but the publisher had an artist who really turned it into a work of art with all of his graphic design and it's a coffee table book uh it's very visual and it has all my doodles and accounts uh don't look too closely at the numbers so where can people get the book i think it's available online rocket books is the publisher and uh i don't think it's in stores so i think you got to buy it online but isn't it going to be in stores at some point i hope so yeah i hope you know they 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 did the book which i don't know costs whatever a book costs and then they do the deluxe version for two hundred dollars two hundred dollars because i sign it or or some little upgrade meaningless upgrade and then for five hundred dollars you can get the same book with some other with a poster uh those went overnight the most outrageously priced versions of the book is this book a labor of love or you actually making money here well those stupidly priced ones turn over instant moolah um but it was a labor of love it was just fun to do okay you're very verbal with a very strong personality not you, so much at and, the moment and you have run a, out of verbal a, a, we're reaching the end of the feeling we've known but yeah, and you have this charisma. How do you get along with people? People are either in or on, or they say, I can't get a word in edgewise, or it's oil and water, or it's all groovy. What's it been like during your life? I'm a noisy son of a bitch, and uh, I'm the epitome of the interrupting cow. Okay, how is that in a band? No. How is that in a band? Fortuitous uh, for the other guys, and I'm very thankful that they put up with me. Uh, I'm a noisy son of a bitch. And did that happen? One of one of the other guys in the band is quiet and deep, and opposites attract. And did this cause tension in the band? And ultimately, was it a cause of the dissolution? No, no. We fought, and there was tension. Then we've realized a couple things. One is that that tension is what made the band work the way it did. And 
more importantly for our souls, we understand that the cause of the tension, which was to put it as simply as possible, we make music for different reasons. We listen to different kinds of music. We make music different ways with different intentions. Music fills a different place in our lives. And so, obviously, when it comes to, you know, whether or not we're going to play this song is a done deal. It's a great song. Listen to that lyric. There's a cool line here. How we play it. Uh, and then now comes the other ingredient, which is the give a shit. Where no, no one wants to just be a passenger. I don't play in a band so that I can be a, like a session guy in my own band. No, I have a band so that I can express myself musically. And if I don't express myself musically, I shall go mad. And so that's because we give a shit and we have different intentions. There's going to be a clash. And it was not a matter of ego or anything like that. It was just that music is real important to us. And when we came to realize that we, during our reunion tour, we had band therapy and we got it all said and we couldn't believe it. We realized what it was, what was going on, but we still clashed musically uh and we still the factors that caused that tension are still there but we understand that it's not evil intention it's not the work of satan and when we're not making music we get along really well and everybody's been not everybody a lot of people have been selling their rights in the last couple of years is that something you've entertained not really no nobody's made an offer you know it, I, i'm Retired, I'm comfortable, I live a very simple life, and that's really by design so that I can be free of all such considerations. I'm I'm completely free. And as long as I don't have 10 houses around the world and 20 cars and, uh, you know, any of that, I live a simple life, which makes me free. And what might we be looking for from you in the future? I'm currently engaged on a couple of very cool missions, but I'm superstitious about talking to them until they come to fruition. But I'm deep at it. You know, I've been playing police deranged for orchestra for two years, and I'm done with that. That's for sure. Okay. You also became a film composer. Where did you get the chops for that? And how did you get the gigs? I didn't have the chops. I learned them on the, on the job. Uh, it was Francis Coppola who gave me my first break. and explained to me what he needed and it just came to me and since i was inventing the wheel it meant that it was different from how you're supposed to do it equals revolutionary and i retired from that uh about 15 years ago uh, after 20 years uh you know the film composer is not an artist he's an employee and a result of that employment under the harsh yoke of cruel employ i learned all kinds of things that an artist would never learn um, main among those things was orchestra. And so I learned, I had an involuntary education in orchestra and then I retired and I do the same job now, by the way, I write opera, which is music and, uh, storytelling with music. Only in this world, the composer is boss, you know, in television, the writer is boss. Everybody works for the writer films. The director is boss. Everybody works for the director in opera. It's the composer's medium. To what degree is there a market for opera? None. 
the business model is to lose money. Uh, rich people or governments pay for it. There is an audience for it. People do love it, and people do come out and see it. It's a very rarefied world. Uh, I'm not going to play Shea Stadium with my next opera, but I got to play in Weimar at the National Theater there. I got to play in, last summer. Uh, my my pieces, The Witch's Seed, played in Italy and by the lakes there, living the dream, doing opera in Italy, and the year before that in Germany and various. It's it's just a really fun mission. It's no way to make a fortune. It's just a really great life. Okay, Stuart, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to my audience. You've been very forthcoming. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm -hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.